in again here on the radio ranch on a another friday come around brent's with us got a group of guys in the in the jitsi room already roger sales your host uh, radio ranch we call our get together our quilting session uh and we'll be with you for two hours and we're here right on the people's patriot network brent winters is with us several of the other regulars are in the room already i guess it's always a good sign when people show up early brent yeah, I think so too. And I think that it means that somebody's anticipating something good or something pleasant or something profitable, even though it may not be pleasant because what is profitable isn't always pleasant. The root, the root of good things can be bitter, but the fruit is always sweet. Just like Brent Allen winners. Well, <laughs> yeah, I can be a bitter pill. I know that people told me that. <laughs> oh, I don't Lord. try to be though. I'm not out trying to cause trouble. That's for I'm out to I'm out to enjoy myself, but I find that other people don't enjoy me enjoying myself as much as I enjoy myself. Yeah. You, you can't take yourself too seriously, that's for sure. I didn't get in there that this is the twenty eighth of August uh get together and we're right at the end of summer and right at the start of my favorite time of year always fall and uh man it is stuff happening all over brent i mean it's crazy i sent you this morning and i didn't see it till i got up the gauntlet that uh rand paul and his wife and and the two guests had to run last night to get two blocks of their hotel through this mob protected by police and thank God, or they would have, there's no telling what would have happened to them, honestly, because they recognize him. Yep. Well, I've been through a few gauntlets like that, but I didn't have anybody protecting me. It can be very dangerous. I'm fortunate I didn't lose any teeth <laughs> or an eye or something like that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad he made it through. I didn't see that. Do they have a film of it? Oh, it's over. Yeah, I'll send you the story. I'll send you a link to the story. You can see the video and all the stuff they had to go through. It's pretty horrific. And then I saw a little clip of him being interviewed this morning. And his hair, man, you talk about a bad hair day. Looking at him in that interview, you go, man, you had a bad hair day. <laughs> uh, yeah. It was pretty, uh, what he had to go through, man, was pretty serious last night. Right he's there, like, two blocks. Like, now, this is two blocks from the Capitol, okay? He's like Everett Dirksen. His trademark is a messy head of hair. But if it gets messier, yeah, that look, that look really weird. I got to drop something in here, Roger. Please. What, what people say triggers things. The word... The Greek word most often translated oppression or trouble in the Newer Testament means most fundamentally a gauntlet. That's what it means. Uh-huh. Of course, it's good to understand it that way. If that's what the writer meant. But when you put that in there, instead of oppression or or uh, narrow straits, that's sometimes the idea. Of course, that's true, too. But the narrow straits are a gauntlet. That's the way God describes the gauntlets, plural, that we must 
deal with in life. There's no going around them. When Rand Paul got into that, he only had one choice. That's right. He better get to the hotel. Turn around. Go, yeah. And, and so that, that's why I think the writers of the Newer Testament use that Greek word that means gauntlet. And you're going to take you're going to take some hits when you go through. But God promises to get you through the other side. He does not promise to get you around it. He promises Brent, to get you through it. Yes. Could you please restate the Greek word that meant oppression and trouble? I didn't miss. I missed that one or it blanked out. Well, here's what I'd like to do. I'm glad you asked. Uh, the reason you missed it, because I neglected to say it. And the reason I, <laughs> and the reason I, I usually do. Tricky. I, I mean, he's yeah, tricky, yeah, this Brent reason, guy. The reason I neglected to say it, I started to say it, and I said, now, wait a minute. I'm not going to pronounce that right. I can't remember exactly the word it is, see? So now that you've said that, I can go look it up while we're talking or somebody else gets to jabbering later, and I'll I'll give it. I'll put it out there because it's important to look up. Well, go look it up, Brent, and we can, I think we can dribble while you're, while you're off there at the bench to get a drink of water. Um, boy, it's been an interesting okay. week. You, you're back already? Okay. Well, no, I, I'm not back already. No, I, this that's heavy stuff, and we need to start out a little lighter than getting right into you. You, you start dealing with the Greek tongue, and you might find yourself under the bed trying to say the alphabet backwards. <laughs> My sincere apologies, Brent. I didn't mean to stir up trouble already. <laughs> well, I know, I know. You're like me, Chris. In that respect, you're a word man. You're a word man, and. Uh, you would like to dive right in. I've been on with you enough to know you like to dive right in. I do too, frankly, but I don't know that other people do. So folks like us, maybe I was thinking I'll relax a little well, bit here and look that up. And we'll, you, know, you know, Brent, yeah. some people like the meat and some people like to start with the milk. Now this ravenous bunch that comes around here daily for two hours, they like, they like the meat. Oh, yeah, I, I can see that. On Fridays, we like the dessert with Brent. <laughs> <laughs> That's later. That's the last 30 minutes or something, Chris. <laughs> I know how it is with you guys. You just, all you want to do is get me pumped up or mad or <laughs> something, light my fuse, and then stand back and laugh while yeah. you watch me burn. All right, let's see. Let me put you on the spot because this will set a tone. When you one day spontaneously came out with Rudyard Kipling's The Female is Mightier Than the Male. Uh -huh. I'd never heard that before. And I mentioned it uh -huh. yesterday or day before to Amanda, one of our new listeners, and she was not familiar with it, and I couldn't recite it, wasn't going to bring it up. Can you, because uh -huh. I think you did it from memory, can you give us The Female is Mightier Than the Male? That'll break well, yeah, the I, ice. I think I can do most of it from memory, and, if there's some parts I can't do, I can try to fill them in. I'll make it up or something. But it, it, uh, this is Rudyard Kipling. This was first published in the year 1915 in the Ladies' Home Journal. The Ladies' Home Journal. And it was an instant success. And uh, all the ladies loved it. But then by the, after World War II, people got to saying, oh, that's misogynistic misogynistic which of course means it's uh it's 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 intended to communicate hate for women 
hate for women because what it does, it draws the clear distinction between the male and the female, not only of men, but of, uh, but of not only of women, but of men. And it goes like this. Here it is. Um, he, of course, grew up in India, so his pictures here are about India, his word pictures. Right By the way, he grew up in an intensely Christian family. And this is biblical, as far as I can tell. When the Himalayan peasant meets the he-better in his pride, he shouts to scare the monster, who will often turn aside, but the she-bear, thus accosted, rends the peasant tooth and nail. For the female of the species is more deadly than the male. When Nag, the basking cobra, hears the careless foot of man, he will sometimes wriggle sideways and avoid it if he can. But his mate makes no such motion, where she camps beside the trail. For the female of the species is more deadly than the male. When the early Jesuit fathers preached to Hurons and Choctaws, they prayed to be delivered from the vengeance of the squalls. T'was the women, t'was the women, not the warriors, turned those stark enthusiasts pale, for the female of the species is more deadly than the male. Man's timid heart is bursting with the things he must not say, for the woman that God gave him isn't his to give away. But when hunter meets with husband, each confirms the other's tale. The female of the species is more deadly than the male. Man, a bear in most relations, worm and savage otherwise, man propounds negotiations. Man accepts the compromise. Very rarely will he squarely push the logic of a fact to its ultimate conclusion in unmitigated act. Fear or foolishness impels him, ere he lay the wicked low, to concede some form of trial even to his fiercest foe. Mirth obscene diverts his anger. Doubt and pity oft perplex him in dealing with an issue to the scandal of his sex. But the woman that God gave him, every fiber of her frame proves her launched for one sole issue, armed and engined for the same and to serve that single issue, lest the generations fail, the female of the species must be deadlier than the male. She, who faces death by torture, for each life beneath her breast may not deal in doubt or pity, must not swerve for fact or jest. These be purely male diversions. Not in these her honor dwells. She... The other law we live by is that law and nothing else. She can bring no more to living than the powers that make her great as the mother of the infant and the mistress of the mate. And when babe and man are lacking and she strides unclaimed, unchained to claim her right as fem and barren, her equipment is the same. She is wedded to convictions in default of grosser ties her contentions are her children. Heaven help him who denies. He will meet no suave discussion, but the instant white-hot wild wakened female of the species warring as for spouse and child. 
Unprovoked and awful, she charges. Even so, the she-bear fights. Speech that drips, corrodes, and poisons. Even so, the cobra bites. Scientific vivification of one nerve till it is raw, and the victim writhes in anguish. Like the Jesuit with the squall. So it comes that man, the coward, when he gathers to confer with his fellow brave counsel, dare not leave a place for her, where at war with life and conscience, he uplifts his erring hands to some god of abstract justice, which no woman understands. And man knows it, knows, moreover, that the woman that God gave him must command, but may not govern, shall enthrall, but not enslave him. And she knows, because she warned him, and her instincts never fail, that the female of her species is more deadly than the male. That's Rudyard Kipling, 1915. That's quite a piece, it was a re- that's quite a piece of work years, right there. But in Brent. recent years, it's had a reemergence. Well, re-emergence. What's that? I Roger, said, that's quite a piece of work right there. Oh, the, the insight is uncanny, and I have to give it to Rudyard Kipling. He had a lot of ups and downs in life. But he, as a young man, clearly understood things that it takes a lot of us a lifetime as men to begin to understand. That was what, in my estimation, was uncanny about Kipling. When you read his poems, and of course he was a poem writer, that's what he liked more than anything. And did an excellent job, and everything he did made him wealthy, and he moved to America. He moved to America and uh, lived here. He was popular here, like he was. He wrote a lot of songs, songs, poems, about British military life, like Gunga Din. You've heard that one. Yes, of course. Uh, you may talk beer when you're quartered safe out here, when you're sent to any fights and owlers shot it. But when it comes to slaughter, you'll do your work on water. And you'll lick the blooming boots of him that's got it. And then he talks about Gunga Din being a better man than him. Fascinating story. But he had never been a member of the Army, the British Armed Forces either. But when he writes about the British Armed Forces, he clearly he understands the most detailed, the most detailed parts of British military life. There was a Back line in there that caught my ear when you read it. The Jesuit with the squaw. Yeah, that's pretty picturesque, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the Jesuits, of course, they came to Canada first, and they then they the French, you know, were the backbone, the initial backbone of the fur trade in America, and then the English and the well, the Brits, the Scots Irish, came out west. Hudson Bay Company gained right. the preeminence when the the French came, and they were like the Spanish. Their involvement was all about enslaving enslaving the red man and the way that they did that in both instances you can go to the monasteries of california and arizona and new mexico and you can see that in the monasteries i meant the missions the, the mission system they called it in spain but it was a similar thing to the french jesuits they came to the new world and they enslaved the red man and got him to do their bidding to do their killing to do their slaughter for them and and uh, nothing commendable about the uh, Jesuits in America or in or South America or any, any place else. They were a dangerous lot without question. 
And they used the red man, enslaved him, and of course provided things for him to get them to do his dirty, to get them to do their dirty work. And the Jesuits, of course, had trouble though preaching. And in the beginning, in order to enslave people, uh, you have to get them to believe that that's the best thing for them. And the way they did that was through the the, the religion called Romanism, Romanism, and uh, adherence to the will of a single man called the Pope of Rome. And uh, they, of course, if they wanted to convert people in South America. They were known for baptizing babies and then grabbing them by their feet and busting their brains out. Mm. That way they'd be sure to go to heaven, you see, oh. and get rid of any any warriors that might come up at the same time. This is the perversion the, of false religion. The most insidious one that, that sticks in my mind when I think about that scene in those relationships is giving those mothers blankets laced with smallpox. Yeah. Now, where did that happen? I'd heard you mention that. I don't know. I've just heard it, uh, you know, many times that that was one of their tactics, I guess, when they wanted to wipe out a tribe. Well, it's like in Islam. Uh, you convert or die, and you'd be better off dead if you're not going to do what we want. Uh, and Rome did that in Britain in the 7th century. They just slaughtered people by the hundreds that wouldn't convert. They've been doing it ever since. Nothing new. It's still being done all over the world. It isn't talked about. And that's the danger. That's the danger of imperial religion. That is an imperial religion. It's a Babylonian religion. I was talking not long ago. I, I don't know where I was from, some public media, and I made mention that the hat that the Pope wears is the, oh, we were going through Danil on Sunday mornings, and I made mention that the hat the Pope wears, that big tall hat with the open mouth at the top, is the fish dagon. That's the symbol of the fish, Dagon, the open fish's mouth. Dagon is the god. Dagon is the, and we call him that Dagon, that Dagon god, but he's the god that, uh, that uh, the Canaanites worship in the Bible. And Dagon in Hebrew, it's a Hebrew word, it means fish. He was a fish god, half fish, half man. Fish, fish he was a fish from his waist up with a fish's head, but had the arms of a man, and they made a giant the Canaanites would make a giant brass uh, brass um, statue of him uh, that was hollow, and it was really nothing more than a giant furnace. And they would, in his hands, they made his hands held out in front of him, cupped, and they would stoke that thing. In the bottom, they'd put wood or coal or whatever they had in it and stoke it up till it was red hot. And then they would take babies yep. and put them in the hands of the of the fish god, and of course that would burn them to death. And that's the way they sacrificed children. Well, that was the God when Samson, in the book of Judges, in the Older Testament, when uh, the Philistines finally got a hold of him, they took him to the temple of Dagon. And that's where he pushed the pillars apart. And there were 3,000 oh, okay. people up gotcha. on the roof and in the balcony. And 3,000 people, he killed 3,000 people. The last uh, He died in that too, but that was the last act he did. 3,000 of his enemy, I should say. Uh, you know, that but, hat um, that you're talking about is a white hat, isn't it? All white? I don't ah. know what color it is. And down on There's the a, corner of it, you know, what's in, you know what's embroidery down in the corner of that hat, Brent? What? A pine cone. What, what is it, Ron? A pine cone. Oh, it is. To, 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 um, to uh, symbolize the pineal gland or what? I, well, mm -hmm. I, I mean, that's the best guess, I think. In the in the, in that garb, in that outfit, he's also holding a cane, a very ornate cane. And at the top, not at the very top, but right before the top, is another pine cone carved in the wood. 
and then out in the St. Peter, the the plaza that he overlooks from his balcony, over by itself is a 40-foot bronze pine cone. Well, tell us about it, Rod. Well, you mentioned this before. Well, I, 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 I think it symbolizes the pineal gland. You know, you can go back oh, to okay. Egyptian hieroglyphics, and there's that one uh, that they call the Eye of Horus. Uh-huh. And that's a cross-section of the brain, perfect cross-section of the pineal gland situated back there where it sits in your brain. Uh, I think these can people, I ask a question? I think, they, I think they've known it for a long time, and I think they still concentrate on it for a number of reasons. Yes, Chris, you can if you just wait a second. Uh, fluoride in the water that they insist on putting in the water. The first place fluoride goes in the body when you take it in, pineal gland, and it crystallizes the pineal gland, which is referred to as the God gland uh, out throughout history. And in fact, the Hindus, the dot on their forehead is symbolic of the pineal gland. Okay. So it's a, I, I, it's a really important thing that a lot of people probably don't know about, but it's real central to them. Now, I've got a listener and a, and a good friend who was a dentist, big-time dentist in Chicago, Brent, and we met down in Argentina, okay? And he told me a while back one of his sons went to dental school at a Jesuit university, and when they graduated, they had to sign an oath that they would not say anything about mercury in the fillings of the teeth or fluoride in the water. Good grief. Well, you know, that whole pineal went, Descartes, the yes, French correct. philosopher, 200, he wrote much about it. Yep. I know. I don't, I don't remember anything he said about I it. I just you. remember that I can tell it you. wasn't something that, what, I, did you send that to me? I probably did, and I can't give it to you exactly, but he said the pineal gland must be the seat of the soul because every other part of the body has an opposite side, especially of the brain, but it sits there by itself. Now, one of its functions is to produce melatonin, which is that substance that puts you to sleep. Um, but, uh, what fluoride does to the pineal gland, it's about the size of a, of a grain of rice. Okay. What it does to the pineal gland normally is uh, to crystallize it. And some people refer to it as the God gland. Okay. Uh, now back when I was in Argentina, I went through a period of a few years, uh, sun gazing. All right which has been done for thousands of years, and you look directly at the sun when it's either very early in the morning or late at night as it's going down because it filters through the atmosphere. Supposedly that light enlarges the pineal gland, and I read one guy that was an avid sun gazer that when he died they did an autopsy, and his pineal gland was four times normal size. Okay, so if it crystallizes with fluoride, can it be uncrystallized? Yes, but I, uh, you know, sun gazing is one of them. Uh, if you're going to think about doing that, research it thoroughly. Okay, uh, but there are, I would imagine, other ways. I'm not sure exactly what they are, Brent, but I think there are. Okay, whether uh, uh-huh. I was not sure. I'm, uh, but I do know that sun gazing, when I was doing it. It, it had a real effect on me as I was figuring a lot of this stuff out. 
through those years. And, uh, uh-huh. I, it's, uh, it was something I looked forward to and did avidly every day for a while. Um, well, so the, why, why don't you, why don't you do it now? Because I'm sat down in a valley and when the sun comes over the mountain, it's too high and too hot. Oh, I see. I see. So you would do it though. If you could get in a position well, where it worked for you. Well, I started getting, getting this macular degeneration started coming on me. And when I went to the optometrist there who spoke English, he was a real nice guy. His mother was an English teacher. And, uh, he uh, he said, "Don't do that." You know, I was telling him I was doing it. He's very interesting. He went to the trip with the, to, to the states with his wife and family right before I left, and uh, he, he she'd never been up there and they had two two boys. And when we came back, he came back and I had an appointment with him. I said, "Well, how did you like the states?" And he said, "I we got to New York and I turned to my wife and I said, these are the new Romans.'" Uh-huh. I just thought it was an interesting comment. But uh yeah, pineal gland's real interesting. It's, it's something you should, you know, research into if you don't know anything about it. Uh, if you want think about sun gazing, research it carefully. Hey Chris, you want to say something a minute ago, man? I don't want to shut you out. Oh, not a problem. And of course to keep uh Brent on track helpfully, I hope. I will remind him we're looking for the word in the Greek for oppress, suppress, boil, boil, trouble, uh vex whatever that means, not uh-huh. sure of that word. But before we go to that word, I also wanted to comment that the miter hat that the uh, Catholica Christos Synagogue of Satan Pope Pontifus Maximus re, uh, wears, the Drago or dragon fish head, uh, in fact, I think the embodiment they later iterated it to was that of Moloch. I'm not sure if it's the fish first or the fish second, but I know that's the same basically concept of sacrificing the children, the innocents, the blood of the innocents, the favorite of God, to the dark side, to the Moloch or Baal, as the case may be. You mean and so when we look at these Jew suits or Jesuits, as they like to call themselves, these uh, warring arm of the so-called Catholic occult church is certainly worthy of uh, approaching them with some severe caution. And what was that word? Which word? Which word is that? For oppression and trouble. Oh, oh. Um, thlibbo. Thlib. Thlib. T-H-L-I-B-O. It's illustrated and seen clearly in Mark chapter 3, verse 9, where it says there that the crowd talks about the crowd pressing upon Jesus Christ, I believe it is. Let me look here. Uh, I got the. I'm looking at the Greek text, and he spelled it out to the the learners, to his learners, that a boat uh, would wait upon him on account of the crowd, that it might not press upon him. That's the way it's translated: press upon him. But the idea there, again, is the narrow straits of a gauntlet. You'd have to go through a gauntlet, and that's what we would say. But, of course, gauntlet's not an English word. It's a French word. I suppose it came out of the American experience in the American Rockies because the red man tribes out there had what they called the gauntlet. They used the French word because the French 
Well, the French had a big influence on them. And of course, we've all seen it in the Western movies. If we grew up watching Western movies like I did, and they'd, you know, old, um, what was his name? Kit Carson. Kit Carson was put through the gauntlet once and they, they said, we want you to run through horseback. And he, <laughs> of course, he didn't have any choice. It was either that or they were going to kill him. So he mounted up and he's, he, when he tells the story, of course, there were men on both sides trying to kill him all the way down the gauntlet. And so he said he had a loaded rifle and a loaded pistol, and he laid his rifle up on across the pommel, and he got the reins in his hands, and he gave her a quick kick in the slats, and away she went, right down the gauntlet. And he said he thought about firing his rifle to scare him off, kill one of them, but he said, no, what if my horse stumbles or one of them trips my horse or kills my horse and I go down on the ground and I won't have a rifle in my hand. I'm going to hang on this rifle no matter what happens and I'll shoot the first one. But in the meantime, he thought he'd just, he'd just uh, make a run for it. And if he thought if he'd go fast enough, he'd live. Of course he did live. You know, he was the one that said after a number of years in the wilderness, most of his friends had been killed or died otherwise somehow or killed. In other words, I mean, either they were, they died at the hands of animals or other men. And, and he, somebody asked him, a newspaperman asked him, how did you manage to survive all those years in the wilderness? And he said, well, I just had two fundamental rules and uh, I noticed other men didn't follow him and they died. Just two fundamental rules. He, they, he said, what was that? And he said, well, number one, I never, 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 never went to bed drunk. I never laid down to sleep drunk. Never. And the second rule I never laid down to sleep without uh, loaded two loaded pistols under my head and under my saddle and uh, a rifle by my side. That'd be three shots, you see. So he said, if you're drunk and you lay down, when you get attacked, you're going to die because you won't have the, the quickness to, uh, to, to deal with the problem. Of course, he could have got killed otherwise, but as some did, you know, Jed Smith got killed, but he, and he never... He never touched a drop of liquor. He wouldn't chew tobacco, smoke, smoke it. He wouldn't drink. And he never, never uttered a cuss word. Uh, he was a devout Methodist. He sang hymns, Captain Jedediah Smith. But he got killed. The Comanche killed him in the panhandle of what is now the panhandle of, of Oklahoma. He left. He was, uh, by that time, he quit the fur business, made a fortune. Came back, bought a house for his mother, put her in Jacksonville, Illinois, and then he took his brother and put him in the Bible school there. It's still there. The Bible college at Jacksonville, South of Springfield. And then he decided he got bored and he knew the West. So he started, uh, started out. He was the, the leader of, of, uh, freight trains and wagon trains going to not freight, not railroad freight trains, but freight trains of heavy wagons going to Santa Fe. And, uh, he went to look for water uh, while they were, uh, near the Cimarron river in the panhandle of Oklahoma. And he came up riding and he came up, had a rifle with him. He came up on a, over a ridge and he looked down and there was a buffalo waller down there and had some water in it. And that's what he was looking for. So he started down into it. Well, he didn't know it, but the uh, Indians had seen him coming and they, they hid themselves. And when he got down that waller, they were all around him. And what they wanted was his horse, his rifle and his pistols. He had a brace of pistols with him. And they got around him. They didn't have firearms. They had lances. They were good with lances. And they were afoot, by the way. And they were there waiting for a buffalo to show up so they could kill it. They were about starved to death. Well, they saw him. 
and they started moving in on him with those lances and trying to spook his horse, which they did. And his horse was spinning and, and, uh, he had his rifle. He finally raised it. He didn't know what else to do. He knew they were going to get him with those lances. So he fired and killed one. And then they rushed him with the lances and killed him. And then uh, people say, well, how do you know? And how does anybody know what happened to him if there were no white men there to witness it? Well, the answer is when the, uh, the freight train finally got uh, Santa Fe, of course, he never came back. And he was the guy that was their, their leader. And they wondered what happened to him, and they figured he got hurt bad or killed. So they were there, and one of them went into a, a store in Santa Fe and saw his brace of pistols for sale and said, now, what's going on here? Well, they found the – they asked the uh, the man running the store, where would you get that brace of pistols? He said, well, an Indian came in here and sold them to me. Well, what did he look like? Well, they found that Indian, and they asked him and said, what happened? And he was there, and he told them what happened. That's how it happened. So there was one witness to the event of how Jed Smith was killed at age 30, 32. He was, he was wealthy by the time he was 30. He died at age 32. Didn't live long, but he was the one fellow that he was the first man to cross from Santa Fe to what is now, uh, well, Pueblo, Los Angeles, uh, Los Angeles. He's the first white man to cross that desert. The first white man, first American, I should say to uh, travel the length of the Pacific coast of what is now the United States, the first white, the first American to come to just to go back across where the great Lake was the great Lake, the salt Lake in Utah and to go around it and explore it. And uh, <laughs> they'd sleep. They go, went across the desert there. They got to the Colorado river after crossing Arizona and they hadn't had water for four days. And uh, well, they didn't quite get to the Colorado. They, one man dropped out. He couldn't go any further. He couldn't talk. His tongue was swelled up so big. He couldn't say anything. And they, they said, well, we're going to have to find water. So they just left him. They didn't want to leave him. They left him in one place. And one Jed Smith then went out and tried to find water, found water, and had a, a, an iron, a gallon iron teapot, a gallon iron teapot, brought back a gallon of water. The fellow that that uh, was about to die. They poured some in his mouth. He couldn't talk. His tongue was all swelled up in the back. They poured some in his mouth and finally moistened things up a little bit. And they were able to pour it down his throat. And then he began to suck on the nipple and he, he drank the whole gallon. And you know what his first words were after he drank a gallon of water? That's a lot of water. His first words were, his first words were, why didn't you bring more? Well, (laughs) he was dry. Well, they got him up and running, and then they got to the Colorado River. And, of course, they're out of water there, too. They're about out. And so, they, and of course, they rushed into the Colorado. I've been right there where it is. You can go right where Jed Smith crossed the Colorado, the first American to cross it, as far as we know. And there were some Indians there with horses. And they took whatever money, silver they had, and they gave those Indians, bought one of those horses, and butchered it on the spot and ate it. They were starving, too. Well, they came back across, and he went through a lot of rough time. People getting, you go to sleep at night, that's when the Indians bash your brains out, and that's what happened to a lot of his men. But he had a fellow with him named Rogers, and Rogers could read and write pretty good. And The only reason he brought him, he was a good man otherwise too, but he brought him so he could keep a daily journal of what they did. He came When he came across from Santa Fe, he wrote a letter, and coming back, and he wrote a letter to the his, his American government. He was a patriotic American telling them about what he had discovered 
He thought the military, the armed forces, would be interested. He told them how much it would take and what kind of wagons could probably get across there, etc. Everything you can think of. They never wrote him back, never said a thing to him. He got jailed and that's that's the government for you. You know, they didn't they didn't pay attention to him. He's stupid, right? Well, he's they he coming back across from Nevada and they were again out of water. They finally found a mud hole at the base of a small mountain and they found about a, a dozen Indians there. And they got to trying to communicate with them. And these he said they were the most miserable excuses for humans he'd ever seen in his life, not because they were stupid or something like that. Just because he said they were so poor of body, so wiped out, didn't have anything to eat, apparently had been there for years and couldn't leave because if they left, they'd uh, died of, of uh, thirst. And so the, the only thing that they had to eat uh, in that little mud hole were these snails that they dug oh. out of the mud. And that's the only thing they'd eaten for years, apparently. Well, he ate some too, cause he was starving. So <laughs> they loaded up on snails and of course eating horses and snails and, what a way to live. Well, they finally, you know, he said, Jed Smith said when he came back to Jacksonville and got his mom set up in a house and took care of his brother going to going to Bible college and all, he said, I, my tongue did not taste bread for nine years. Nine years. All he had to eat was meat, had a goiter. All those fellows out there had goiter, great big goiters because they didn't have any iodine. Right. Of course, all the Indians out there, had, a lot of them had goiters too. People don't talk about that. It's very dangerous. I don't know how I got off onto that rabbit trail, but that was Jed Smith. He's somebody. He's a he's a unsung hero of Americanism. And most people know who Kit Carson is. Well, Kit Carson was a good fellow, but he didn't do half of the intrepid things that Jed Smith did. Jed Smith, he was the one. Hey, by the way, Jed Smith was the one that was with Kleiman, John Kleiman. Kleiman was born on the state of George Washington's family back in uh, 1797, I think. He went west. He, George, Kleiman was the one that sewed Jed Smith's scalp back on his head after they were in the Black Hills. Again, as far as we know, there hadn't been many people in the Black Hills. He's walking along. In front of his, they called him Captain Smith because he was the leader and he was the partner. Ashley and Smith, the fur company. Ashley was lieutenant governor of Missouri. He was walking along, uh, and all of a sudden, uh, a sow grizzly come charging down over the hill. Before they knew what was happening, hit Jed Smith broadside, took his head in his mouth, and ripped his scalp off through his head, and then threw Jed off to the side and, and left, kind of like the U.S. government or the IRS. You know, they come in. <laughs> tear everybody up, throw them in jail, and then panic the whole crew, and then all of a sudden they disappear. That's what the government does when they're after people. That's why they're a grizzly bear is a good uh, – because they attack for no – you can't tell why a grizzly attacks. Sometimes you can, but sometimes you – why did the – because sometimes you're around a grizzly, and they won't attack at all, apparently. Well, ripped his scalp off. He's laying there on the ground. His scalp is hanging by a thread beside his head. You can see his scalp, blood profusely running out. Climbing runs over, and he's so panicked and upset and scared, they all were. They didn't know what to do because they were just young men. And so Jed says now, he says, Climbing, he said, get in my wallet. I got a sewing kit in there, and I want you to tell one of the men, go get some water. If you can find some, pour it on my head, on my, on my, my, uh, my scalp. I pour it on there, and then... Uh, lay my scalp back on there with my hair as best you can. And take that sewing kit and sew it back together. 
and uh, he, his hands were shaken according to the accounts the men were there, but he finally got calmed down and Jed just kept talking to him, just relax, you can do it. And he sewed his scalp back on. And then he said, what do I do with, here's a piece of your ear. He ripped off. What do I do with that? He said, well, just take the needle and do the best you can to put the pieces back together on my ear and sew them back together. And he did. And uh, then uh, Smith passed out. He, he was, he, the shock got to him finally. Uh-huh. But every time you see a painting of Jed Smith, he'll have the hair covering his ear on one side. And that's the reason. He wore his hair long down over the ear uh, on that side. But now, how can you find that? That kind of intrepidity, to use that word again, is hard to find. But Smith had it. And it's, I suppose, one of the reasons why history has ignored him was because um, he was so devoutly Christian. He was Methodist by denomination, but devoutly Christian. And he didn't complain. He, he did make note in some of his journals about how panicked men would get when they, they'd store their tobacco in with the furs if they had to bury it to get away so the Indians wouldn't kill them. But they'd come back and dig it out. Men that had been without tobacco for a while, he, he did make note of their panic, their utter panic to get back in there and, and find that tobacco so they could have a, a smoke. But, uh, uh, I just got a message from somebody said, Brent, please stop. That's too gruesome. So maybe this is time to take a breather. I was going <laughs> to say that's, is horrible. that's when men were real men back in those days, buddy. You know what those fellows used to say? And this apparently was true. They said, meat don't rot in the mountains. Meat don't rot. In the, what they meant by that is you can, if I get sliced up or cut up or beat up or tore up, uh, open wounds and all, somehow those wounds in the mountains uh, never rotted and they always healed back. So the, and there are a lot of them that ha- that happened to a lot of them we don't know about, but I'm sure it happened more often than the, the, the accounts that we have. He was he had the foresight to uh, have a man along that would keep a journal of what happened and, and as an eyewitness write the stories. And we're thankful for it, of course. Yeah. You learn a lot about life that way and uh, how men react to hardships and to uh, the pleasant parts of life. Those are certainly the lessons and stories they don't want taught in the schools today. Cody, we got a nice brisk board here. Daryl's here. Cody's here. A bunch of folks here. Harv, I see over there. Anybody want to chime in and get us uh, off in a direction? Yeah. Okay. Who's it? Yeah. Yeah. Good morning. Hey, Daryl. Daryl. Hey, uh, you. uh, Good morning, Brent. Morning. Uh, You were were going over uh, Rudyard Kipling there, and I. uh, I just wanted to pull out a little background information on Mr. Rudyard Kipling that most people are not aware of. Uh, he uh, he was a made man, uh, not not taken away from his talents. Uh, they were on uh, display for everybody to see, but he was a part of the uh, the eugenics program associated with Cecil Rhodes and the uh, the homosexuals and the pederasts. Uh, the, the evidence that supports this is that he was uh, on the uh, one of the managers of the Cecil Rhodes Trust. Uh, that information was unearthed. So he was he was a made man on the inside of the uh, Cecil Rhodes Zionist movement out of England. And uh, there's two poems that he wrote that were unpublished. They were supposed to be kept secret. I have copies of them. Uh, 
I'd be happy to email them to you. They're kind of tricky to find. Well, sure. I'll uh, email them to me. Uh, yeah. Please. The, uh, the first poem, the first poem was, uh, well, there's two of them that were unpublished actually. Uh, uh, the title of it is the gods of the copybook heading. And the other one is the burden of Jerusalem. And, uh, there was a, uh, a letter from Winston Churchill to uh, FDR in uh, October of 17th, 1943. It's a very short letter. I'll read it to you. Uh, this is Winston Churchill's letter with the uh, royal stamp on it. Royal stamp of approval, you know, kind of like blue bonnet butter, right? Uh-huh. So uh, it says, my dear Mr. President, I'm sending you with this letter two small unpublished works of Rudyard Kipling, which I think... Uh, I mentioned to you. Similar copies were given to me recently by the president of the Royal College of Surgeons of England uh, on the occasion of my mission as an honorary fellow to the college. And I thought you would like to have both books for your library. I understand that Miss Kipling decided not to publish them in case they should lead to controversy and it is therefore important that their existence should not become known and that there should be no public reference to this gift. And that was Winston Churchill to FDR in 1943 in the throes of war. And uh, I'll do my best to see if I can't uh, get those uh, in an email to you. So uh, Richard Kipling, a very interesting guy, Uh, by the way, my opinion anyway, but a totally made man uh, on the inside uh, working with uh, scoundrels. And uh, uh, he, uh, you know, the the other precedent for that is H.G. Wells, which a lot of people think is just this, uh, you know, uh, talented writer of science fiction and social commentary. And there there couldn't be uh, in the in the list of top treacherous people, H.G. Wells is would have to be in the top uh, tier. So that these are. These these are some more of the background of the fallacy that I uh, I try to dig out and ferret out on these people that uh, have uh, had cover. Well, digging up two of <laughs> Not, Rudyard Kipling's unpublished uh, poems is pretty good digging, bro. bro. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they hide. They hide just as they do now behind. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, pretense and title and uh, o- officially accepted sanction. They hide. Uh, we're dealing with liars, thieves, and murderers because they're Canaanites. I say they're Canaanites. Yeah, I think so too. That's who's running our government now. They're Canaanites. Your government's your government's been taken over by Canaanites. <laughs> There's no question that uh, Kipling would be called today an Anglo-Saxon racist. And he said that uh, he can't imagine a greater blessing than to be born uh, British. Uh, that was his big thing. And I, I agree. He was like Rhodes in that he thought that uh, what Britain had must be transported to the rest of the world because the rest of the world were heathens compared to them. He did have that attitude. I don't know whether it came on him young or old, but I, I would suspect that the money he made because he was a wealthy man, the money he made was from his talents. I, you say he was a, 
a made man, I assume you mean uh, not in the sense of financially, because I assume his poems made him wealthy. That's what I've always understood. But he was protected probably by that crowd. And he was part of that Cecil Rhodes crowd, whoever that was. Um, and I'm not an expert on that subject, but like you, I like to read about it. I imagine you've read more about it than I do, but I, I have discovered the same thing about him, just not probably to the extent and dug as deep as you have. I have a question for well, Darrell. Yeah, yeah question, go ahead, Chris. Question time, Chris. Well, it, it seems that I recall reading something that H.G. Wells was also a pseudonym but I don't recall with any clearness what his true gnome or moniker was. Do you? You know, I, uh, in, in the, to the extent that my memory serves me, which sometimes my brain is like a sieve, so I apologize. I don't recall, I don't recall uh, H.G. Wells as being a pseudonym, uh, but I, uh, I I do have uh, uh, I have a lot of his uh, more obscure works that weren't science fiction, and have read them, and they're uh, they're uh, absolutely delineate layout in 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 actually pretty good detail, almost exquisite detail what we're actually experiencing right now. So, um, Daryl, who was the, uh, the guy, uh, who was the guy in his name? You don't hear it too often. I just found out about this a while back and I know you know about it. Who was the guy that married the, the Rothschild heiress and then she un, uh, untimely demise. Lord, uh, Lord Roseberry, Lord Roseberry. Okay. Lord Roseberry. Guy. Have you ever heard of him? Brent? Lord Roseberry. Lord Roseberry. Oh, who, who is he? Yeah. Daryl. Well, uh, he's he's uh, he, he's an amazingly uh, powerful Jew <laughs> by 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 association. Yeah, where did he live? Uh, well, he lived in England. Oh, and, he's uh, gone, you're saying? Yeah, yeah. He uh, he married. Uh, uh, what was it uh, Nathan? Nathan Rothschilds. Uh, he didn't. Nathan didn't have any sons and. He married, uh, had a daughter, and Lord Roseberry married her. And when she died, he got the whole kit and caboodle, or or control of it anyway. At this point, at this point, he is becomes a funding source and uh, uh, facilitates uh, uh, the uh, the British uh, intel uh, of that time going forward, and is also affiliated with the Cecil Rhodes agenda for uh, reacquiring uh, not only the United States, which uh, was what their primary, one of their primary stated objectives was the reacquisition of the United States, which they accomplished, uh, yes, which did. is better well known now as the, uh, uh, the uh, um, shadow government uh, and deep state. So uh, the, uh, Roseberry is, is a key pivotal um, character personality of the 1800s uh, that facilitates um, World War One, Federal Reserve, uh, media. Uh, yeah, he's a big deal. <laughs> well, I'm looking. I'm and, looking. Um, what's his first name? You said. Uh, 
Well, I, I just know him as I just know him as uh, Lord Roseberry. I'll, I'll send you. I'll tell you what. I'll link you in. Uh, I'll give you some 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 actually some pretty recent uh, deep dive document searches that have been made uh, available on Lord Roseberry and the uh, subsequent outgrowth of uh, of those actions and who he was associated uh, associated with. So. I mean, this is, you know, when you start going into this history of these people and it's it's like the most exquisite detective story ever, you know. And if you're a detective, you, you, you want to catch you want to catch the liar and, and the criminal, <laughs> you know, if that's, you know, that's that's the purpose of a detective story. Who done it? So, mm-hmm. well, yeah, I hope you're but, not uh, when you get to the very bottom of it, let me know. Well, we won't. Well, we know who's at the bottom of it. Uh, you can, we, we we already know who's at the bottom of it. We just we're just trying to we're just trying to sort out the uh, the uh, the people of this world that uh, facilitated it. You know, you you can't really understand where you're at unless you knew where you came from. That's and true. I think that's the important part of history yep. from my perspective in these cases. People are confused now because they don't understand where this came from. They think it just just uh, this event happened and it spontaneously spawned itself you know well it didn't yeah and uh, uh, no, you're talking about trying to ferret out who the useful idiots are the useful idiots of yeah. state themselves yeah. you know the john yeah. the point you say we know yeah we do know some things for sure because the evidence is in the written record is clear and john says the whole world the whole the whole world order lies in the lap of the of the evil one the evil one and the word the word you that he uses there for lying in the lap is the same word that the older testament in greek the septuagint uses to describe uh samson asleep with his head in delilah's lap the same word describes samson with his head and he's sleeping with his head in Delilah's lap. And that's the picture, it seems, that he might be trying to create there. But certainly that's true. And the, the evil empire, the useful idiots of it, want to lull us to sleep like Samson in the lap of Delilah. Mm-hmm. And, and he's, he's stroking stroking the hair of, the, of, the, of people and telling them how that they're, well, she's trying to weasel information out of them. Like, what is your weak point here? I'm going to find out information about you, and then I'm going to, of course, use it against you, which she did to his destruction. And then he, of course, in the end, he ended up killing 3,000 Philistines in one one movement. But still, it's dangerous. So we know that. I get what you're saying. Uh, but to be able to discern who the evil ones are in the meantime, that's uh, the job of free men to do that. And the Bible gives us that job, and it takes work and discernment and that's why we appreciate um, people that will take time to try to ferret these things out and that's why i enjoy these discussions by the way brent could you give us some background it's come back to me this week it's one of those things that lurks around in every now and then you think about it i heard it referenced somewhere this week um uh-huh. the story of gideon and the reason i'd like to do that is because i liken our small band of trusted fellows to that biblical story and what 
he commanded them to pick those people out of uh, the soldierage that were different and what they did. And I think it's a really important corollary to, uh, to us here. So if you could go over that, I'd appreciate it, and I bet everybody else would too if they haven't well, heard this. You mean when he took them down and, and uh, they went down and he said, first, uh, if anybody's newly married or if anybody's afraid, leave. If anybody's afraid, leave. We don't want you in this armed unit if you're afraid. And they, a lot of them left. Then he said, take them down to the river. And it's time to water your troops. And the ones that get down and, and uh, drink like a dog, put their face right down in the face of the water and suck the water up, said, tell them to leave. But the ones that dip the water up with their hand and keep their eyes open and looking around, keep them. So he, he ferreted out uh, all the ones that were afraid. Fear is a terrible thing in a military unit. If people are panicked or afraid, if they're not, or even murmuring, if they're not got under control, it can ruin everything for everybody. And of course, that can have dire consequences. So those kind of things have to be somehow, somehow ferreted out. Well, that's what he did. That's what God commanded. And so he ended up with uh, just uh, a few men, not a big army. And they defeated the enemy, not by physical force, but by by craftiness. Stealth. Still, yeah, I got them so afraid, got the enemy so afraid that they turned on each other. They, it was nighttime, and what they did was they took uh, jars or pitchers, I think is one translation that probably fits, but large earthen jars, and they had a candle inside of it, each of the men, there were 300 of them, just 300. And uh, they lit the candle and they held the jar in their hands. And then on, on uh, Gideon was the fellow's name. Gideon was the fellow that God chose to lead them into battle. It really wasn't a battle. It was just them. Uh, they turned on each other and destroyed each other. But he, he told them on his signal to break the jars, the pottery jars. And they were standing outside the walls of the city. They were trying to, to conquer at night. And when they broke the pottery jars, of course, all those candles immediately became apparent. It scared the daylights out of them. They thought there was a, maybe a massive bunch of men. This is a common military tactic, too, I suppose, but not just like that. I'd, that's a little bit different, but you hear stories. I know uh, at home there's a place called Vincennes, uh-huh. and uh, Vincennes... Uh, and then on the other side of the state is Kaskaskia. Uh, it's on the Mississippi River. Vincennes is on the Wabash. Vincennes is the home of a Red Skelton, if that puts it on the map for you. But at Vincennes, um, Patrick Henry gave letters of commission to a fellow named George Rogers Clark to go and take the Virginia Territory back in the West that the British had occupied after the colonies went to war. And George Rogers Clark then went as far west as people knew to go in those days, which is the Mississippi River. They didn't know what was beyond that much. And he captured the fort at Kaskaskia, north of St. Louis on the Mississippi, 160, about 160 men. And then he came back, back across uh, southern Illinois to Vincennes. He had to wade his, about half his way back because all the, it was spring and the ice was busting up and all the rivers were swollen. They got back to Vincennes, and uh, he 
told his men to get outside the Vincennes Fort on the Indiana side and uh, scream and holler and fire. And when you fire your rifle, jump up and run to another position, fire it again. We'll cover this whole area out here and make them think we got 500 to 1,000 men. And uh, he ended up then taking Vincennes. They, he, he fooled them into believing that they had 500 or 1,000 men and took the fort. They were scared, see, and just gave up before putting up a fight. Well, that's the same thing then that happened. Only the difference is when Gideon did that in the Older Testament, the enemy turned on themselves in the night and thought they were being invaded, and they started slaughtering each other in the dark. And uh, that's the way that's the way it happened. And, and God told Gideon to say, the sword of the Lord, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. That was what the cry was, the battle cry. Was that the story you were talking about, Roger? Well, yeah, it was. And what I really wanted to pull out of there was the fact that he told them to pick the ones that looked up while they were drinking. The truth yeah, seekers, yeah. the ones that are looking around at all the other stuff, yeah. as, as opposed to the people that drink like dogs, as you say. Yeah. Get down to the water and don't pay attention. And a guy like that could be ambushed real quick, I suppose. Yeah, for whatever reason. But well, they, they were. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, they were, they were the watchmen. They had a watchman spirit. They were, they were situationally aware, and they were self-aware. They, they consciously, you know, they could forestall satisfying their thirst to re- retain situational awareness. Uh, they were the first special forces. <laughs> they were, they were the original special forces crew, right? Yeah. yeah. Analogy. Yeah, more brains than brawn, and that's probably more important. You know, it's amazing. Uh, it's amazing. You never know who the dangerous fellow is in a situation of war. And you read the stories about war and fighting, and the most unlikely fellow is the one sometimes that jumps up, jumps up and does the most unbelievable thing or even takes leadership when those that are the official leaders don't know what to do. And that's uh, the point. Kind of like a – Go ahead. Kind of like a 17-year-old boy in Kenosha? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I suppose that would be uh, be analogous in some ways. But there's uh, plenty of plenty of instances of it. I think I'd probably mentioned this here before, too. But somebody gave me a book. Somebody, I don't know who it was. It was a, well, I know who it was. And he said, read this. It'll do you a lot of good. And he would leave it. And uh, it was a paperback. He threw it in my lap. And I... I got to reading it. I was very young then, and uh, I read it once. I said, well, that was good. Just a series of stories. It was written by General George C. Marshall, and the name of it was The American Military Officer. And when you put it all together, after he gets done telling all these stories, what he's saying is he tells story after story after story after story of nobodies who became the leaders. That was the whole point of the book. Uh, officers aren't always the leaders. Uh, petty officers aren't always the leaders. Or the man that's in charge of the company is not always the leader. And in Acts chapter 28, 7 and 28, the leader was not the, the, the uh, centurion of the Roman legions that was there. It was Paul the apostle. He saved everybody's life. And he said, you do what I say and it'll all be. And he happened to be a prisoner. <laughs> he was a prisoner uh, being taken to Rome. But he, came to, he became the leader on board the ship and everybody's life was saved. Well, that's what uh, that's what George C. Marshall is saying. Leadership arises to the mo- moment as the Supreme Court, or not the Supreme Court, the, well, the the uh, appeals court in New York once said uh, the emergency 
the emergency begets the man. The emergency begets the man. And that's an unforgettable phrase, and it's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, you never know what a man might do, uh, given the right circumstances. As one fellow said, uh, heroes are men that uh, rise up from the mundane unexpectedly and above us all and flash like lightning and light up everything below and inspire us to great deeds or greater deeds or to keep going. And then they fall back to earth and become like one of us again, and maybe even more so. Uh, You never know who God is going to use to do that. Never. It may be the most unlikely candidate. He told about a fellow named Lang, I remember. This really happened at the beginning of World War II. And uh, he was stationed in the Philippines in an army unit. And uh, Lang was from Kentucky. He was a hillbilly. He didn't have uh, about half the teeth in his head. He, nobody really liked him. They thought he was stupid. And uh, the bombs started falling. They all they didn't know what to do. They'd never seen such things. They all ran in the bunkers. And they peering out, watching the bombs explode. And, and some men didn't make it and they had been hit or wounded and they were laying scattered about in front of them and crying for help. And, and Lang, the fellow nobody liked who didn't know how to brush his teeth and, uh, didn't, didn't, uh, show any intelligence hardly at all. All of a sudden he took a stretcher and pushed it out in front of him and he started sliding his body across the the dirt on his belly, pushing that stretcher out in front of him. And he got out to where one wounded man was and he rolled him into the stretcher. And then he started pulling him back and he dumped him back into the, to the bunker where the corpsman could take care of him. And then he took the stretcher and he did it again, bombs falling all over explosions. And then they got to laughing and making fun of him. This is George Marshall telling the story. Uh, Maybe somebody told it to him, but he said they got to laughing I think that he, well, he was decorated. So there was, there was an account of what happened, an official account. He, he did it and did it and did it. They got to laughing, making fun of him and saying, well, there's old, old Lang out there having litter drill in the middle, middle of a war and joking about it. But then they, they quit making fun. Then they got silent and began to feel guilty. And then one of them finally took a, one of the stretchers, the litters, and uh, pushed it out in front of him, started doing the same thing, and pretty soon they were all doing it. And they were all helping, trying to get the wounded men in. And he makes the point um, that everybody there was frozen, scared, didn't know what to do, except Lang. He said, well, shucks, this isn't hard. These guys are dying. Let's see if we can help them. And so that's what he did. And others, other stories he told that were just as riveting, just as stabbing, just to make people realize if somebody's, if you can't be the leader, if you can't be the leader for whatever reason, and somebody else that you don't expect should be the leader is the leader, uh, help him, help him be the leader. And, uh, it'll be good for everybody. That was his point. And he said, a good military officer will recognize that will recognize that and get out of the way. Uh, one decent matter that Ted Turner said was lead follow or get out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. If you ain't going to carry the flag, get out of the parade. I mean, there's other ways of saying it, but I like that one. That's the most descriptive that you did. No, I agree. And, uh, recognize, um, recognize the, the ability, the co- contribution of the other fella and let him alone, get, give him room according to his strength. And then 
it will inspire others too. That's the whole point. The heroes of battle are not the officers. I, it, I suppose it has to be that way. You know, U.S. Grant gets the credit, Robert E. Lee gets the credit, but they're not the ones that, that um, put their lives on the line like the others did and suffered the consequences. And they're not the ones that had to show the bravery. They may have been the inspiring figures, uh, General Patton. And that's all important. You got to have that. And there's, you know, men, officers traditionally don't lead men into battle by being in front of them. They're usually behind them with a pistol in case anybody tries to break ranks. Right, right. Uh, the, the men, <laughs> the men, you know, you see the pictures. I remember when I was a kid seeing the pictures of the Battle of Bunker Hill. And uh, the British uh, line was all lined up in their red coats and their big hats, and they're advancing. And I noticed every so often behind this long line of British soldiers, there would be a British officer, and he had his sword drawn. And I didn't understand that. I thought he was supposed to be in front waving his sword, leading the charge. But no, they're behind the troops. In case one of them breaks and tries to run, they're supposed to threaten him. And if he doesn't respond, they're supposed to kill him with their sword or their pistol, whichever they have. The pistol got to be the popular thing, you know, later on for officers. That's why officers carried pistols and not rifles, so they could shoot people that retreated. That's what that was all about. Of course, they could use them on the enemy if they wanted to. You know, but, uh, Brent, we, come, well, we stumbled on one of these guys that uh, talked about it a couple of weeks back, and that's Sergeant York. He was another one of those great examples. Wasn't that his name? He, oh, yeah. York? He was a corporal that, yeah. What's that? Well, his name was Alvin York. Right? Right. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, Alvin York. He was an officer. Uh, he was a corporal, and everybody else was either dead or debilitated. And in, in the surprise that happened, they walked. They just walked right into a German camp. Didn't know what they were doing. They were behind enemy lines, supposed to breach the machine guns that were above, firing on the Americans. And it was a small, oh, I don't know, 15 men or something. I think I remember somehow it sticks in my head. There were 17 men, and it was a patrol. Well, they walked into this camp of these Germans without realizing it before they were just right on top of them. They were making breakfast. Well, all of a sudden they saw the Americans and boy, the gunfire started. And then there were some Americans dead, but everybody was debilitated. And and uh, command was given over to, to Alvin York because he was the highest ranking man left who was able-bodied. He was a corporal and he <clears throat> didn't didn't uh, hesitate. He got behind the bush, 40 yards behind the machine gunners. And, uh, he, they made, uh, the Americans made the Germans all lay down. They had, they had them finally that they won that conflict, but at a terrible price. And uh, the ones that were able kept them all down, the Germans on the ground. And he got behind a bush 40 yards behind the machine gunners. They didn't know what had happened. They'd heard gunfire. Some of them had turned around behind them, the machine gunners, and saw what had happened, and York uh, got behind a bush and uh, got his rifle and began to pick off the machine gunners. Well, they turned the machine guns around and began to, they didn't know where the fire was coming from, but he was killing them. Every time a man raised his head up between the handles of the machine gun, he'd just put a bullet right in his between his eyes. And he killed quite a few men that way. They knew the fire was coming from his vicinity, so they took their machine guns and they plowed up the ground. They plowed up the ground all around him. They didn't. They just plowed. They didn't know what where to shoot. They just shot everything. They never hit him. Well, finally, they got it pinpointed that the fire that was he killed about twenty five of the men that tried to operate the machine guns. Twenty five. 
Everyone, I think he killed 25 men with 26 rounds. Whoa. Somehow he missed. But he shot them all in the same place uh, at 40 yards. Well, they finally figured out, they pinpointed where the fire was coming from. So the, some of the officers, German officers, circled around behind him with some of their men. They said they had some chivalry in their in their veins. And they said, anybody that's got that kind of, kind of skill and uh, caginess, he deserves a fighting chance. So we're not going to just go kill him. We're going to come around behind him and, and charge him with bayonets and see what he does. And they did. And they charged him with bayonets in a staggered line, a staggered line, not just a, a straight line, but staggered. And he heard a noise behind him and he turned around and he had a German Ruger pistol hanging off his little finger just in case he needed it while he was firing his rifle. And he turned around and saw him coming. And he instinctively, the way he described it, he, he started with the man that was furthest back and dropped him and dropped the rest of them in line. And then the next man, then the next man. And just before the front man got right to him, he dropped him. Fortunately, he had enough rounds in the pistol to do it, or otherwise it would have been a touchy situation. But uh, now there's some men that were willing to allow a little fairness to a fight, and uh, we'll never hear their names again. But we're glad, of course, that, yeah, uh, well, I just got a message said that, that out of New York was born in 1887 in a place called Paul Mall, uh, Tennessee, which is right on the Kentucky border in East Tennessee. But he was a good shot. He's a good shot. Now, there are other people that say, to be fair, there are other people that say from their grandparents told them that it didn't happen that way. And Alvin York was nothing but a government promotion. Nothing but a government promotion. And you can uh, you can read what they, they have said about it. And I know that that's true. There are, that to take a young man like that uh, the same thing happened with uh, General Chuck Yeager. He was taken and used as a promotion. He uh, by just by sheer luck, he shot down five airplanes, and uh, he shot them down at a time when the German uh, high command said, uh, "If there's any chance at all that you're going to be shot down, jump out of your airplane, because we can't afford to lose any more flyers." Well, he shot one airplane, German 109, and it it tipped and. And hit the other airplane, and so he got two kills with one shooting down <laughs> one plane. Not to take away what his his uh, his skill, and, and he had good eyesight. I sat down across General Yeager, across from General Ye- General Yeager once. General Yeager, he was the most famous client I ever had. He was client once. I sat down across from him when I first met him. It was at a part store in California because he was good friends with the, the owner's family. His wife had been part of that family very close to them. His wife passed away. First thing I said to General Yeager, I said, General, he said, yep. I said, uh, can you read that magazine laying there on the table without glasses? And he said, I think so. And he picked it up and said, yeah, I can read it. He read a little bit of it. I said, well, I heard you had good eyes. I just wondered how good, you know, he did have good eyes when he was 19, 20 years old and he was flying. He didn't go to school to be an officer. He was a flying sergeant. He was from uh, West Virginia and uh, they needed flyers. We needed them too. And so they took those young men, put them in and he, um, he had real good eyes even when he was older. I haven't seen him in years. I don't know what his condition is. I've heard tell he's not doing too well now, 
uh, course up. He's way up 96, 97 years old. I think he's born in 23, 23. Yeah. So he'd be 96, 97, closer to 97 probably. But he had good eyes and uh, he was skillful in what he did. And he, he uh, did a good job as, a, as an officer. I'm not taking away from that. I'm just saying the government said to him after that, after he became an ace, after he shot down five, uh, General Eisenhower wouldn't let him go back into combat because he was afraid something would happen to him and they wanted to use him to promote uh, enlistments. And they did, of course. I mean, I knew who Chuck Yeager was when I was a boy. He was a fellow that broke the sound barrier, and we all knew that one. Yep. And we uh, like to read about it. You've heard of Chuck Yeager, too, haven't you, uh, Roger? Of course. My oh, daddy, yeah. Who my, daddy our, was a, my daddy was What's an that? Air Force officer. <laughs> yes, I Oh, am. yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Brent. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. We, uh, well, I had the privilege of meeting him uh, and Bob Hoover at uh, Oshkosh uh, many years ago. I used to I used to go to Oshkosh every year for the fly-in, and uh, they would that was a common place for them to be, so you could yeah. actually meet meet those guys. Uh, but Bob Hoover, Bob Hoover was the only guy that uh, I'm aware of that Chuck Yeager wasn't willing to square off with in a dogfight. <laughs> Did he say that? And, yeah. Uh, yeah, Bob Hoover was. Uh, uh, he 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 kind of he kind of plays uh, tail end Charlie to Chuck Yeager's reputation, but Bob Hoover was an amazing uh, stick man uh, of almost uncomparable uh, either ability or craziness. One of the well, two. Was he, was he a German or an American? No, no, he was American. Yeah, oh. he's an American. Uh, he flew Mustangs as well, and. Uh, uh, at the at the age of at the age of uh, seventy years old, Bob Hoover was still doing air show presentations at uh, Oshkosh, and he had a twin engine uh, Aero Commander Shrike, Shrike Aero Commander, and uh, he he would he would get out in front of thousands of people at Oshkosh on the north south runway and and put on a uh, a show with his. General Aviation Shrike Aero Commander, and uh, and just when everybody thought they'd seen a really good show, he would he would shut both engines off and then do it with uh, out any power. Oh, <laughs> and yeah. and and then and then dead stick in and land the aircraft uh, to a precise point on the runway with energy management. So this was this was. Uh, Bob Hoover. So if anybody's not aware of Bob Hoover, he's a good, he's a, he's an interesting character to research. You know, he got, he got so Brent it's, you'll find this interesting. He got to the point where he couldn't really drive a car or think about mundane things like we might in our day-to-day life, Yeah, but he could still fly an airplane. (laughs) (laughs) And the, the FAA, the FAA wanted to take his license away. Uh, he really wasn't safe on the road and they wanted to take his life, his life is their aviation license away. Yeah. And, uh, so then he demonstrated for him what he could do in the airplane. They really couldn't, he, he could pass all the criteria in the aircraft. I mean, I just find it, it's just, it's, it's, it's an interesting uh, story about Bob Hoover. Well, it's so. just probably natural to him, instinctive. And even though some of his senses were 
wavering when it came to that. Yeah. It, it, I get what you're saying. Oh, yeah. You know, the thing yeah. that one of the encouraging things that it's a story that Chuck Yeager told me and uh, about his father, you know, after he uh, broke the sound barrier, of course, he was chosen to do that. There were other men that were much more senior to him that probably otherwise would have been put in that position, but he was the one they focused on to make famous. There's no question about it. It wasn't because he made himself famous, but he said after that happened, he was awarded some special military honor and he had to go to the oval office to receive it from the president and had a big ceremony. And uh, Harry Truman, of course, was the officer and his mother and father, Chuck Yeager's mother and father, Harry Truman invited them, which was normal, I suppose. And there were other guests there. And when it was all over, Harry Truman went down the line, shake hands with all the people that were there and came to Chuck Yeager's father. Chuck Yeager told me this himself. So for what it's worth, I just passed it along. And he said, uh, Truman held out his hand to shake hands and Chuck Yeager's father stared at Harry Truman and wouldn't lift his hand. And of course the cameras were rolling. And so Harry Truman just went on. And uh, Chuck Yeager told me the only reason his dad wanted to come to that ceremony, the real reason he said he was glad to come because of me, but more than that, he wanted to snub Harry Truman. And the reason he wanted to snub Harry Truman because Harry Truman was a Democrat and uh, a new deal man. And Chuck Yeager said, my dad was no new deal man. He wasn't a socialist. <laughs> and uh, his dad, his dad was a, a gas driller. You know, they got coal and oil and gas in West Virginia and well, oil too, I suppose he, he described him as a gas driller. Well, I know what those kind of fellows are like. They're pretty independent minded and are prone to, to take a lot of chances. That's what the oil business is all about. But, would be to God we still had men like that. You know, you do that to a president today, they'd probably mark you and try to jail your family or kill you. Uh, I don't know that that's true, but I could. it wouldn't surprise me if that happened with some presidents. I mean, what did this Camille Camilla or Camel whatever we talked about before, this Harris gal, didn't she say she was going to come after everybody that uh, supported D.J. Trump and, uh, and uh, look out because you betrayed betrayed us you're traitors and we're going to get you something to that effect well, that's uh, the I tell attitude you, you know Brent, i'm still shocked i'm in a minor state of shock that the issue of her not being a natural born citizen is never brought up by anybody well no it isn't i if if, if she happens to get into any position uh that she hadn't ought to be in i'll just keep saying She's not whatever they say she is, president, vice president, whatever. Uh, she's not for two reasons. Number one, number one, she's not a natural born citizen. She doesn't meet the two prong test, two prong test of a natural born citizen. And number two, she's not fit for public office, period. For a lot of reasons, I'll save till later. Yep. I mean, by evidence by the two, these are the two best that they could drag up for the election yeah it's like what the cat drug in it's it's uh, it's a joke it's I mean, be a joke What's okay that? chris yeah man we're waiting to hear from you well it's a, a very strong knowledge that kabbalah kamala <laughs> is a kabbalist and hold it remember hold she's it. i got it I, I, I you lost me at Kabbalah Kamala start again <laughs> 
Well, and not only that, being from Jamaica, we have to pay attention. That's also where voodoo high priestess Marie LeBeau emanated from. And I know that right now she was formerly the concubine of Willie Brown while he was married to somebody else. And that's who mentored her and groomed her. But uh, it's 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 so blatant in your face that she's an anti-American undercover operative that I don't see how anybody can overlook it. But I did watch the yeah. speech last night and I was amazed at the end. His speech was phenomenal. Uh, he was a good speaker and he was on point. Forty one times he addressed Biden. But at the end, they had this monstrous exhibition of fireworks extraordinaire. And part of what the first volley was, they had Trump 2020 in the fireworks part of the presentment with actual in it was letters inside the fireworks from fireworks. It was quite yeah, amazing. It was. I saw so, that. Uh, so Let anyway, Kabbalah Kamala is a dangerous breed, mate. Have so you what's seen, your Have y'all seen what happened to Rand Paul after that last night when he was trying to go back to his hotel? No. Yeah. Oh man. Uh, yeah, I sent you the link this morning, Brent, uh, before the show, you need to watch it. He was mobbed yeah. by the mob and his hotel was two blocks from the white house. And all of a sudden the police came, he saw, here, I guess I'll tell you the as much as I can remember. They were leaving. They saw mobs everywhere. They got in the back of a van type vehicle and they took them weaving through the mobs a couple of blocks away. And he said, "We need to go back to the hotel." So he got go, going back towards the hotel close to the White House and two blocks. He said, I, "This is my mistake." Rand Paul said that on the interview I saw. This is my mistake. Two blocks from the hotel, I said, let's get out and walk. And they got out of the van, and then they were overtaken by the mob. But fortunately, they had gotten to a line of police that he saw ahead of them. And if it wouldn't have been for them shielding him, there's no telling what would have happened to him and his wife and the two female guests they had with them. They got into the hotel, and the mob followed them into the hotel. Good gravy. And nobody, the police didn't try to stop them. They tried. They were doing their best to protect them. And not get the Jacobins. Yeah. I'm telling you, it's the Bolsheviks, the, the Jacobins. Jacobins. It's the formula. They're they're pulling it out everywhere. Uh, you wait till you see that video. Yeah. You, th this is happening in Washington D.C. within two blocks of the White House. Let me throw Gosh. one more little fire on the log. The there's a there's an attorney out there from Florida called Farmer Jones. Excellent. Name is Alex Jones, but he's the other Alex Jones. And he exposed the military special operations playbook that they're using called the counterinsurgency playbook. And this is a Solinskyite, the Talmud guide for taking over a country run by the deep state, George Soros and Associates, trying to destroy this country, destroy the infrastructure attack all American ideals, um, all of our statues, our history. This is a Bolshevik revolution, too. Well, let let me tell you what Rand Paul said on this interview. That was, He said, look, these people that were there, 
He said they need to be arrested and not held, but find out who is sponsoring them because they're not from Washington, D.C. They're flying these people in, bussing them in or whatever, and we need to start cracking down and find out who is financing them because they are liable also. This is the deep state secret army. Yep. Rosenberg, this chick Rosenberg is probably the spearhead on all this violent stuff, coordinating it, bringing in the the wackos. You know, one did you, did you see the story about one of those guys that was shot in Kenosha the other night, Brent? The little five foot five Jewish guy named Rosenbaum that had three separate uh, three separate convictions of uh, pedophilia already in three different states. Whoa! Let Every me tell one you a little bit more about him. Every one he of them that he shot. He is a George Soros paid crisis event actor who was put there to shoot to blame the on the militia. It's a frame the blame on the victim sort of thing. And because this is an FBI special ops, just like the one they did here in Las Vegas, like they did on me like I did in Aurora, Colorado, Tucson, Arizona, and other locations, they send in this undercover agent that's clearly a George Soros soy boy, not a true militia member, but they try to put the militia label on them so they can associate it to the people they want to destroy, and it's an anti-gun agenda explicitly. All three of them that he killed were had uh, felony records. Have you not seen any of that video yet? No, I don't see any. No, I well, I saw the one with Ron Paul, Rand Paul, because you sent it to me. I just looked at it just now. It it wasn't very long. But uh, what I couldn't understand: why is he wearing a blasted mask? Why was he wearing a mask? I mean, you're in the middle, you're in the middle of a, a, a brawl, trying to save the life of your wife and children, and you're wearing one of those goofy diapers on your face. What's the matter with him? He's a doctor too. Uh, yeah, I think he'd know better than to wear a bacteria well, trap on his mouth. Well, you know, I saw is. a little one of these little memes the other day, and it had the little mask, you know, Paisley little mask, and it said, you're telling me that you're wearing that to protect yourself from something that escaped out of a level four bio lab? <laughs> right. Hey, uh, uh, Brent. Yeah. Uh, you're, uh, you're an old farm boy, and, and I am too. So I, uh, it, it dawned on me the other day that, you know, there's more and more people that are getting uh, hoof and mouth disease by wearing, by wearing these things, you know. And uh, it, it just sort of dawned on me that the, uh, the new disease of wearing the, the physical disease of wearing the mask should be called mastitis. Mask Titus, you know, kind of like, kind of like the udder on a cow when they would get infected on the on the on the tits. Isn't that what happened? About cancer hysteria, mask insanity. When cancer grows, isn't it? Doesn't it get maskatized? Yeah, yeah. You can't you can't make it up. It's uh, you know, the other thing that people are actually starting to talk about here, which is very important. and I don't think the common common uh, man or woman is realizing this is but it's it's apparent to me that this uh this mask is making you functionally autistic uh, and uh, and I'll tell you why it's because you can't 
you can't perceive any facial recognition from the people that are wearing it. So you're not getting the feedback, uh, the, the body, the body signals and the communication off the face and which makes you autistic because autistic people don't typically, uh, uh, you know, take in visual cues. They don't, they don't, they don't see the body language. So this, this is a great way of destroying, you know, uh, communication but it, it functionally makes you autistic the islamic veil of submission i was thinking about this the other night the irony of it what if five years ten years ago you'd have walked into a bank with a mask yeah they'd have hit the side yeah. let me tell you what happens in, <laughs> yeah. i don't know if it's this way in the u.s but i wear baseball caps a lot you know and you can't walk in a bank with a baseball cap on down here Every, the guard at the front will stop you. Every take a sombrero, sombrero, you know. So it occurs to me that now the real bank what? robbers are making the victims wear masks into their establishments. Why can't you wear a ball cap into a bank? Uh, you know, I don't know. Other than maybe you're going to rob it and the cameras can't see your face or something. But I've had oh, it happen. Yeah. New, yeah. Listen, not only in well, banks I- but even in bureaucratic situations you walk into some bureaucratic thing and the whole room's full of people waiting to see a couple of bureaucrats and you got a cap on the guy comes up take off the sombrero <laughs> i'm not kidding you well, roger all the time yeah. yeah we're locally locally here uh you can't go into a bank anymore you have to do everything via the uh, drive through teller you're not even allowed to go in huh so uh, around here so oh uh, you can't uh, yeah. you can't be on your phone either in, in the banks in Ecuador because they're afraid you're going to signal to somebody, so you can't even have your phone out. They'd have they had a couple of instances when I first got to Argentina, and people would go in because everybody wants to sell property and they want dollars, okay, and so people bring dollars in or they go into the bank or whatever and they get a big loan or close a deal. And somebody in the bank has relayed somebody outside, and they knock them in the head when they walk out the door and take the bag of money. That happened several oh. times down there. Uh-huh. That's something to watch for. You got to be careful. Well, Listen, I tell uh, Gringos, you're coming down here. Don't come down here waving a handful of $100 bills going, I've always wanted to own a winery. Don't do that. Yeah. Well, the, one of the things that really troubles me about all this is that it denies people. It denies people the fundamental right to a public trial. They're they're conducting courts all over the country now with face masks on, not allowed to take them off in the courtroom. Like you said just a minute ago, if you can't take off a mask while you're being cross-examined, you're being denied the right to confront, confront with witnesses not to mention just a public trial in general. You can't confront a, a witness when you can't see the expression of their mouth as they're talking, when you can't put their eyes together with their mouth and the rest of the movements of their face. That's what that's all about. Plus, I went into court recently, and the judge had a piece of plexiglass in front of him, in front of him, had a piece of plexiglass hanging down beside him, had a mask on his face, I couldn't understand what he was saying. I couldn't understand when he said sustain, objection sustain, sustained or 
or uh, overrule. overrule. No, I had to ask twice. And uh, then I tried to cross-examine the witness. It threw me off my game. I'll, I'll admit huh. it. I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, couldn't do it because it, like, like uh, Hoover, Hoover jumps in an airplane and he can fly it. He jumps in a car and he may be a little bit dangerous. Well, you, you do something different to a guy, take away what he's used to and uh, what is really necessary, and it throws you off your game a little bit. It threw me off, uh, no question about it. Uh, not that anything, any damage was done that anybody could probably see, but I couldn't hear what other folk were saying. I couldn't see the expressions of their faces, which is key. Yes, it is. That's what I said a while ago. Yesterday, Very I, key. Had to, I had to get it's out destroying and what it's doing. Go ahead. I, I had to get out and run some errands yesterday, go to the grocery store and run a couple other errands, and I went to the mall. And my my Spanish, understanding Spanish, is challenging to me as it is, even after all these years, yeah. especially when they talk real fast. Well, yeah. man, you get them talking real fast through a mask, and I just oh, sit yeah. there and just shake my head at what they're trying to get across to me. Normally, I've gotten to the point where I can maneuver through conversations pretty well. I pick out enough keywords to know what's going on. But, boy, with these masks on, it makes it a lot, a lot more difficult. Well, I had two people say yesterday to me, well, I have two grandchildren that got the coronavirus. I said, wow, was it? How bad was it? Well, they were. Had a fever for a couple of days. Another one, one of them just had a, a stuffed up nose, just lasted a couple of days. I said, that's it? And I, yeah. Well, how do you know it was a coronavirus? Well, they said it was. You're going to trust them to tell you what it was, and it was nothing. Yeah, I, I guess. Uh, there is, I, I keep saying, there is no virus. As a matter of fact, de facto, there is no virus. Most people will capitulate and say, well, I know there's a virus, and it's dangerous, but it's stupid to have to wear a mask this because not, the chances of getting it are uh, about one-tenth of one-tenth of one percent. In other words, there, for example, there were more deaths on any given day this month, more deaths in California uh, by 25 people this year, 25 people by this, this year, than there was last year on the same day. It's a lie, not only a little bit, not only mostly. No. It is. But all, I keep saying, there is no virus. There's, a, there's some scientific. The only, evidence, the only evidence you have there's a virus is the government telling you. There's, and the people the government telling you want to promote the virus, to promote the vaccine, to make the money off the vaccination. But, we're, yeah, but Brent, people are that stupid to listen to them and wear a mask. That's important. Just wear a mask. Just put a little incense in the censer for the Emperor of Rome. Mm -hmm. You can do anything you want the rest of the year, but you got to do this one little thing. You got to wear a mask. You got to put a patch on your shoulder that says Yehuda, Yehuda, anything. Just all you got to do is give us a, just tell us what guns you have in the house. That's all you got to do. Just tell us. Come on. It's no big deal. We're not going to take your guns. Just tell us. Just put a mask on. We're not going to force vaccinate you. We're not trying to find out who. Who's for us and who's against us? No, yeah. that's not true. The, this is a deal, a real big deal, yeah. not to mention dangerous for those that wear masks. It is the, a bacteria. One of the I next steps is. Roger, I'm fired up. Look, give me, if you just okay, give me go, go ahead, Brent. I'm going to let you get it off your chest. I talked to a fellow in Walmart stalking. I walk in, don't have a mask on. Or they try to say, sir, sir, you've got, you want a mask? And I just say, no, I don't want one. I walk in, walk around. And, I was talking to the guy that was uh, at uh, stalking the vegetable thing, and 
he was looking at me, and right where his nose and mouth was, it was soiled. I said, your mask is soiled. He said, I know. I said, it's collecting dangerous things that are dangerous to you to breathe. He said, I know. I said, that's sick, isn't it? He said, yeah, it is. I just got to keep my job. Well, that's the way it is. They're forcing it that way. It's, it's sickening what they're doing to people. Back to you, Roger. It's a bunch Back of you. So in, sa- in sales, if you get taught any professional sales courses, one of the approaches is to ask a lot of the potential buyers a lot of simple questions that all lead to a one-word answer, yes. And then when you get to the big, well, would you like to own this? He said yes eight times. He says yes again. This masked yeah. thing is the pre- pre- uh, pre- precedent for the vaccine that they're going to yeah. offer, which, by the way, I saw a, something on a video. The Chinese or Russian went out to a bunch of countries around the world, and their approximate cost of per vaccine is $145 per injection. Okay. Making a lot of money, too, yeah. And this we'll get all your money and we'll kill you at the same time. All the patents go back to NIH patents. Fauci and them are all involved. goes back to the at 90s. And what the test evidently is doing is testing for a chromosome that you have in your body naturally. So what the test is for is to see if you're human. And it comes back that you've got covid you know, one of the things I've learned, I mentioned it yesterday, Brent, that just came to me, is over all these years of studying this stuff, I've come to realize one day that they always put the hook at the front end. You know, the 14th Amendment, uh-huh. the Nationality Act, the uh, 26 CFR, the hook's always at the front. Well, here are the hooks, they're tricking it in the test. Uh-huh. And they got patents. Nobody can touch anything with COVID that they don't go back to those NIH patents. They can't do tests. They can't do vaccines. They can't even hardly look at it on a page without checking with those people. Now, you said. I'd like to ask a question to Brent. This is Harvey. Uh, Yeah, how are you? How on earth? And the NIH patent anything. My understanding from years back was that the government couldn't patent things because the government didn't have uh, its its own money at risk. You know, the people that work for the government are being paid by the public. Um, Maybe it's a quasi-entity situation like the CDC right there in your backyard, Harv. Same situation, yeah. I believe. Here's my understanding of it for what it's worth. Uh, only persons, real persons, hot-headed persons, warm-blooded persons can patent something. Now, other people then can own the, or other uh, non-warm-blooded persons, corpses, I call them corporations, creatures of government that they say are persons that are not. Uh, those uh, creatures can buy a patent, but they can't get a patent. Only real men can get a patent. Because real men, individuals, can get a patent. It's the same thing, of course, that's uh, true of, uh, well, only real men, hot-headed, red-blooded men, can uh, claim the Fifth Amendment. Corporations can't do that. Uh, That's what I understand about patents. Same thing's true, by the way, with mining claims. Uh, Only men, uh, men can, uh, well, unless they've changed it, maybe they've changed it, but when I was in the mining 
business hot and heavy. Only men could stake a mining claim and they could sell it to a corporation. But you had to be an American or someone with an intent to become an American citizen to stake a, a mining claim on federal land. Same thing's true of patent. You got to be a, a a real person. So that would mean the the else. government, which is a corporate entity by necessity almost, uh, that has not incorporated themselves. They just that's the way we we deal with it in the law. Um, they uh, can't patent anything. That's be my understanding too. Uh, the other but thing you know that's important, law, important here, Brent, you can't patent anything natural. Well, I, I think it. you're talking about patents, so I think it's uh, primarily important to let you all know that the United States Patent Office has been under contract and is operated under contract by um, the... Uh, uh, British Corporation uh, since um, oh, what's what what year was it in the twenties or the thirties, Daryl? No, it was they 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 took it over by contract um, here uh, uh, probably about twelve years ago. No, so. Um, the uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the corporation, and Chris should be able to help me with this. It's uh, the biggest the biggest corporation that well they they op- actually operate RCA now too. It's a British basically a British intelligence agency that operates our patent office. Uh, it also bears in mind that uh, uh, part of Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton's power from the very beginning was that she was a patent office, uh, patent, uh, attorney. attorney and, and they have, she has patents and technology for communications. So she's a, I'm trying to remember the name of the corporation. It's what Chris, could be seed and company seed. or the West, uh, no, West. no, 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 no. It's uh, uh, you know uh, my my mind is a sieve. I'm, I apologize, but I, I can state unequivocally that it's a fact that uh, the the United States Patent Office that you perceive as the American United States Patent Office is uh, uh, no such thing. Yep. Uh, like and uh, it's <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, yeah, go ahead, Cody. They vote on it, like the con- the Congress actually voted on it, or is this something that's been done surreptitiously? No, they somewhere? probably surreptitiously did this. Cody. It's 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 contract. It's just contracted out. The it's it's like fifty um, percent of the fifty uh, percent of the the uh, air control towers are operated by this uh, same British corporation. Uh, the, the, what you consider to be the functions of a, a sovereign national state have all been, a lot of the very important ones have been contracted out to foreign corporations, French and British. And Israel. Uh, Israeli. Let me jump in and say something. When I, when I got my last patent, my attorney told me that, uh, that you know the the rules have all changed since my younger years it used to be that when you applied for a patent 
you could make some outrageous claims. It was just a, a trick of the trade. You made a bunch of uh, outrageous claims that were not going to pass. And the patent examiner would take six, eight months and then come back to you and say, no, this is not allowed. And then you make some other claims and you keep going like that. And you just kept the ball in there and you kept, kept your patent pending. Well, they, uh, they now, you know, once, once your patent was issued back in the old days, you had 17 years of patent protection. Well, now, when you file a claim, the clock begins to toll, uh, and uh, and and that's uh, and you've got twenty years, but it but uh, it's not dependent on when the patent is issued. And he explained to me that that had something to do with the international uh, patent laws. You know, getting everybody on the same page. And there were some other things. Oh, yeah, it used to be that if you could prove that an idea had been yours, like you had a registered letter uh, with your patent uh, described, and someone else had snitched your material and filed a patent claim on it, you could prove by other documents that you were the original inventor and you would they would reverse the uh, the patent uh, issuance and recognize your claim that was done in fact with the invention of the laser the guy that invented the laser was uh, politically left wing and he realized that the laser had incredible military applications. And so he took it to the armed forces and showed them what he had. And he said, look, this, you know, this has got defense military applications. And they took his notebooks and wouldn't let him have them back. And they kept his notebooks for years, in which time other people invented the laser and after years of fighting he finally got access to his original notebooks which had been notarized by the pharmacist in his neighborhood and they recognized his patent as the uh, ground zero patent on lasers and everyone that was using lasers in the world had to start paying him royalties. So uh, it's different now. Then they now, used to call that a poor man's, to, they call a poor man's patent. You'd write it out and send it to yourself and not open the letter. That's but, right. Right? That's right. Certified letter, or actually registered letter. And that was one way to do it, just to prove that you had that idea at that time, but now we've gone to European rules. My attorney told me that the European rules were first one to file is the one who gets it. But, you know, even if you can prove that you had the idea first and that this low life stole it from you, 
Those are they have a special name for them over there. They call them law merchant patents. Oh, really? I'm being facetious, man. No, I was going to say I hadn't heard that one. <laughs> if you steal it, you got it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's um, yeah, it's a it's a sad situation, but the patent law has changed in the last. As Daryl was saying about 12 years ago, that's mm-hmm. what I was led to believe. They, um, what do they call that? Com- merging them or conforming them? You know, yeah. the, the way they, they pull this deal off is they get a country and they open up trade. And then they've got to be able to, here's the word I'm looking for, harmonize the laws because the countries are now doing trade and you go in and harmonize the country's laws to yours. Yeah. Oh, let me say one other thing uh, as regard, uh, Brent, your remark about the generals hanging back in, uh, in the rear, and that is almost universally true, but the, uh, the one general that I know who was the absolute opposite of that was... I can get who was it? I'm sorry. Who was it? Bedford Forrest. Oh, Bedford Forrest. I thought you were going to say Chesty Puller. Well, no, by the time Chesty Puller got to be a general officer, he was hanging back as well. Oh, okay. Uh, That was just the command structure of the Marine Mm -hmm. Corps. That he was promoted to a general in Korea, but. they had to have somebody that would fight, so they promoted him. He said he would have never gotten promoted if it hadn't been for the war. Uh-huh. And But Nathan Bedford Forrest rode at the front of his men in all of the charges. And he had 29 horses shot out from under him in the course of the war. And he killed over 30 men in hand-to-hand combat. I should say individual combat. Yeah. Uh, some of it's with pistols, but he killed a tremendous number of men with his sword. So he was uh, probably the, the greatest field commander this country ever produced. And, and now his name is a curse word. Unfortunately. Oh, well. Well, look, I would suspect I would suspect that part of his great success was because he hadn't been locked in by training to any any uh, any particular method, and so he just said he was in the field and he, he signed up as a private, I believe, didn't he, with his son? Uh, <laughs> At the same time. Uh, yeah. just by himself initially, uh, yeah. but his son Willie did fight with him, and yeah. uh, and. Uh, a younger brother as well, I believe. But, so he didn't suffer. Didn't suffer what other people did as to be locked into any archaic methods. Mm-hmm. He didn't go to any military school. Oh but, yeah, exactly. Yeah. In, in fact, he was Brent, fighting on. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Harry. Sorry, he was fighting. Uh, the corporation. Army. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, we're we're stepping on. Somebody each better be quick. Barrel. We're about out of time. The, the well now Daryl oh, no. 
on Daryl's audio locks up when he goes to talk. Well, Daryl, hold it. <laughs> You'll have to hold it because <laughs> Brent's got to tell I'm folks how to get more Brent winners real quick. Uh, commonlawyer.com, www.commonlawyer.com. Join us on Saturdays for a due process class. You can see how to do that at commonlayer.com. Thank you, Roger. You're very welcome, Brent. Thank you. It was a pretty good session today. A lot of historical stuff, military-oriented stuff, manly kind of things that wish we had more of these days. Maybe we will. Uh, appreciate everybody on board. We had a lot of uh, folks listening. Not too many folks interacted, but that's just fine. Hope you got something out of it. A lot of good lessons laid out in front of us today. Jim Ram uh, is replaying next, I guess. But we'll be back on Monday and uh, see what happens over the long, lonely weekend. You guys have a good one. I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about next week. I'll see you. Have a good day. Thank you, Brent. Uh, Thank you, man. Hasta la vista, baby. Find the cost of freedom. Buried in the ground. My-